You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble and drunk. Beat out old trouble and drum. Beat out old trouble and drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Kick him 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 out the Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. I'd like to thank all those people who donated, courtesy of Radical Australia, to Community Radio 3CR during the June appeal month. Unfortunately, you can't get a tax deduction for last financial year, but you can get one for this financial year. So if you do have any spare cash... And you want to keep free CR on air and keep all the interesting guests that come on to Radical Australia talking for another year, you can donate in three ways. You can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate and donate. If you're like me and you're sick and tired of all these platforms, you can actually send a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood or... You can actually uh, ring 039 419 Go through all the little bits and pieces. You'll finally get to a human being and you'll be able to donate if you've got a credit card. Now, look, I'd like to thank everybody. Next week, I won't be bothering you anymore. So uh, this is the last week that uh, you can donate. Well, you can donate any time you like if you went tax longer, but that's a different matter. Now, I've got a special guest. Uh, we still got issues here at 3CR. I'm in the studio uh, Leanne's been doing all the uh, work to ensure that we're on air. Our special guest, Michael Carbines, is in regional Victoria. And uh, you may hear a bit of beeping in the background. Don't worry, that's all part and parcel of us broadcasting in a COVID-19 period. Michael, how are you? Yeah, well, thanks, Joe. Yeah, uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we tell people where you live? Oh, sure. Yeah, Ocean, fine, Grove. Yeah. Ocean Grove. Ocean yeah. Grove. He comes from Ocean Grove. Yeah. Born in Ocean Grove, bred in Ocean Grove, and he's going to die no. in Ocean Grove. Is that right? No. No? <laughs> no. <laughs> Hopefully none. Yeah, no. No, I was actually born in Geelong, so oh, yeah. that's a leading to a question, is it? Or not? Uh, look, mate, I ask the questions, you answer them. We've got 56 minutes, and that's the way it goes. You've listened to enough well, radical Australians to know. That's not really all that fair, Jay. You know, what, what if I'm sort of disagreeing with you on points or something like that? No, no, it, uh, we're, not, we're not making points. We're, l- we're learning about right. you. Now, before we start the program, I, uh, I've got a, a friend who's 
wants to say hello. She met you in Ocean yep. Grove 16 years ago, and she had many dreadlocks uh, then, and now she's got no hair. Uh, Kelly. Really? Kelly says hello. Oi. You remember Kelly? Yeah. I think she, um, we went drive out into the uh, forest, and I think I showed her, I had some birds, some budgies at the time. Mm. Is that right? Yeah, she. I don't know. Yeah. All I know is you met her yeah. in Ocean Grove while she was collecting yeah, for did. an environmental group. And uh, yes, I, yeah, I remember her, Joe. Yeah, yeah I, I mentioned to her a day or two ago that uh, I was yeah. going to interview you, and she said, "Oh, yeah. I've got to listen and to say hello to Michael." Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, Joe, I remember her. Yeah. Yep. What What year were you born? Uh, just to orientate listeners. Uh, nineteen fifty nine. And you were born in Geelong. Yes. Yeah. What, what's your first memory of being on planet Earth? Yeah, I always think about that, Joe. I mean, I know you asked that question on this program. Um, I remember actually uh, heading down the driveway on a three-wheel bike. Right. And not being able to turn left because there was quite a big hill. And then not turning, able to turn right because of just the speed I was travelling at. And I actually went across, hit a wire fence on the other side. There wasn't housing there then. Uh-huh. And I went over the wire fence and landed in the paddock. And my arm hit a um, concrete block and broke, broke my elbow. Right. So my older brother came down with a, um, not a sledgehammer, but a like a big hammer and smashed this rock up. You know, he actually blamed that. The rock. It was a slab of concrete, actually. Yeah. Yeah, bashed it up, broke uh, it all up. Yeah, how old were you? Um, I would have been, well, we left Geelong when I was five, so I would have been a little bit younger than five. Right. Maybe four, five, yeah. Right, right. Mm. Yeah, that's, right. yeah. Have you got have you got any siblings apart from the brother who smashed the concrete up? <laughs> yeah, I've got a, um, a younger brother. Yep. Uh, Glenn. Yep. Um, he lives in Western Australia, and um, my younger sister Heather. Right. And yeah, my older brother Greg. Right. And yep. uh, are your parents still alive? Uh, my dad passed. Um, Five years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Dad passed away. Yeah, well, so. I met him on a number of occasions. What was his name? Yeah, Keith. Keith, that's right. For our listeners, and what yeah. type? Of, what type of bloke was he? Fantastic bloke, Jeff. Tell I us mean, about he... him. Tell us about him. Okay, well, um, Dad was born in Geelong. He was born in Maitland Avenue, and he was born about two blocks away from Mum, and Mum. Had him riding around on his bike. And one of Mum's friends um, asked her about him and she said, oh, yeah, he looks like a good sort, you know. Uh-huh. So um, then up going out on a sort of blind date and that was it, basically. Uh-huh. But Dad himself as a person, yeah, Joey, um, Dad's um, uh, father's stepbrother left him when he was little mm-hmm. and went to work for, um, they went to Toad Brothers in, and um, Dad was brought up by his mum. Right. And Dad's mum didn't want to, this is according to Mum and Dad, their story, didn't want to leave Geelong. They wanted to stay in Geelong. They had another business is there. Um, and Dad uh, got into a little bit of strife. Um, he ended up uh, eventually moving into the electrical trade did his electrical, and then we moved out to Brighton. Um, and from there, we uh, Dad's one of Dad's best friends, uh, Eric Hepner, who's also deceased. 
um, had a bit of a talk about different things and Dad wanted to start up his own business, Joe, because um, Dad's been working in the funeral industry, so Dad wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, so we moved to Kai. That was on advice, and we did that, and we built a business there in Kai. Hang on, hang on. So, an, under, an undertaking business. Well, undertaking is a part of it, Joe, yeah. yeah well, I suppose undertaking means you undertake to yes. remove the body, yep. you know? Yep. A funeral director is a person who directs the funeral, so right. there is distinct. There yeah. is distinct difference. So, so obviously, yep. so you, obviously you move with your brothers and sisters to Colac. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. so do you remember much about living in Colac? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, lots. Yep. Um, great place to grow up when you're little, like as a kid. Like there wasn't. Uh, I've mentioned this in poetry and writings before. There wasn't really very much to be frightened of as a young boy. Like, you'd go out, there was lakes and rivers and beautiful places you could go. Yeah, we didn't have a lot of problems growing up. We had to work very hard. Like, my dad was building a business, so he was still doing his electrical and trying to make a name for himself. Um, his opposition in the town was getting most of the work. Um, Catholic work. Uh-huh. Uh and then that started to change. Dad was uh, Protestant, so we started to get more Catholic work. So things started to work out a bit better. And we'll like um, end up doing like government undertaking work for um, taking bodies to pathology and um, yeah, maybe taking to Geelong to Hetners or Token Brothers in Melbourne. Um, we had sort of affiliations with other funeral directors. Mm-hmm. They needed help, mm. yeah. Did you help, as a young boy, did you help when you were in Colac or...? Yeah, Joe, yeah. Well, what yeah. did you do? I mean, your dad's an undertaker. That's unusual. He's a country undertaker, which... It means... is. It's something that people don't like to talk about. It's something like um, you get the comments, ah, oh, someone's got to do that job. Yeah. You know, like, and lots of humour. Like, I know when you go down to the you know, pub for a beer or something after work, you always get jokes because it made people feel easy about things, yeah, especially in a small town. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's sort of... It's, I think the hard part was when you knew people. Yeah. Um, someone that you grew up with and they, they died or or babies. Babies were a you know, particularly disturbing type of funeral to do because you do a little petite, small coffin. Mm-hmm. And it's always sort of a bit distressing, you know. Doing a funeral, you can see the not the futility, but the, you know, it's a bit absurd, isn't it? Really, mm. Mm. especially at that particular time for the family. So you don't make a lot of eye contact. I, I found that easier just to right. pack up the files and mm. jump in the car and head home, basically. So really, how, um, how old how old were you when you were assisting your dad uh, in the funeral um, undertaking business? Oh, that's a good question, Joe. I don't really know because um, Dad used to ask about the lifts or if he had to go to a nursing home hospital house in the country somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be any time of the day because funeral directing is a 24-hour business. Right. So we could be up any time. There wasn't any... Uh, and say to a person, OK, sure, we'll be out tomorrow. Should be right. No, you couldn't do that. You had to you know, get out there and sort of be on your... Mm. Be prepared, basically. Mm. So, so you, 
So your dad, would he be called out, as you said, he was a government, he did some government work, he'd be called out to accidents yeah. and stuff like that, wouldn't he? Yeah, that's right. Which yeah, would yeah. be would have been yeah. very um, confronting for him. Yeah, I think that was the hardest, really. Like, that, that, um, like, that was good at arranging funerals. I tried arranging a few funerals and I found it hard not to get, you know, emotionally attached. It's a very difficult mm. job to do, um. Yeah, and especially if you get someone that's like he, I remember one particular young family got killed in a, a road accident, and the four young people were were killed, mm. and it was it was quite disturbing. Like, you know, that, those sort of accidents, or you know, where there's younger people, it's always a bit disturbing. Yes, Dad was very strong. He was very strong-minded. He was growing up like Dad was very strong, and he taught us to stand up for ourselves. Um, right. Everything had a fight. Or um, if anyone was strange, mm-hmm. yeah, that, that's always a funny story that I always sort of reflect to people because he said, like, if you ever have anyone that is a bit strange, just come and tell me. Right. And we're, we're at the Botanic Gardens one day, and this man came up to us on the bike, and like I'd seen him before at the he worked at the Colic Hospital, and he had a was a baller, like a baller maker in that right, sort of, right. yeah. And we thought he was strange because he had like a light pigmentation. He had light hair and sort of pinkish eyes for albino. Yep. But we didn't know that. We just thought, oh, that guy's different, you know. What's he coming up and talking to us for? We didn't know about like um, Catholic, you know, the things that were happening behind the walls of the Catholic churches and so forth. Right. I only found out that later in life, you know, so that was very, very funny. Yeah. Who's that in the background? Oh, it's my little dog barking because my mum's coming in. Oh, all right. So, yeah. Well, yeah. well, I'll ask, first of all, I'll ask your mum's name and then I'll ask the dog's name. It would be discourteous to ask your yeah. dog's name right. first. Yeah. Mum, talking to Joe now. Um, yeah, my mum's name's Gwen. All right, yeah. right. A few times before. Oh, yeah. Hello, Hello, Gwen. You look uh, you're looking after you're looking after that old bloke called Michael Carbines, or is he looking after you? <laughs> He's not a bad old stick. Bad old stick. Bad old stick. <laughs> I just check, I just thought I'd better check him out. I've been doing nothing down in the house, and I thought I'd check check my cat. Yeah, <laughs> And he's talking to me. You realise yeah, you realise, Gwen, you're going to be on radio. You're on radio, mate. You're on radio, Gwen. Oh no! Oh yes, <laughs> we trapped you. <laughs> yeah, okay. All right. All right. We wish you all the best. Thank you very much, and thank you for looking after Mike too. That's okay. Yeah. Bye. 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 Now, the dog's not going to talk to us, is he? Or she? No, she can't communicate. She can't speak English. All yeah. no. oh, right. What's what's her name? Bonnie. Bonnie. All right. Yeah, you've had yeah. a succession of dogs, haven't you? Yeah. We had, um, when we were in Geelong, we actually had a little Scotty dog. Uh-huh. And then when we got to Colac, we had uh, Labrador. Um, we had two German Shepherds. Right. Uh, I've got little Jack Russells, yeah. second Jack Russell. Right. And, yeah, they're beautiful little dogs. Right. 
So did you go to primary school in uh, Colac and high school or just primary school? Uh, actually, yeah, no, I went to kindergarten, kindergarten, high school. Right. In Colac, I went to um, Colac West Primary School. Right. Which was a public school and really good school. Uh, and left there, I went to a high school, Colac High School. Right. What, mm. what, what was it like for a young man in the uh, seventh, well, sixties and seventies to go to high school in Colac? Uh, well, it was challenging, Joe, because I think you know you had different teachers from different areas um, of the world. Like we had Canadian teachers and um, American teachers, uh, Australian, English. Um, and there was European, like there's more of an authoritarian people that come out from the, uh, Yugoslav. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so we had a, yeah, it was very challenging because our history didn't really reflect the people, the students or teachers. Right. We didn't really know. Mm-hmm. We didn't really know very much. No. What do you mean you we, didn't, what do you mean you, you didn't know well, very much? Well, we basically learned the, the um, basics of British history, really. Right. Yeah, guess, yeah. You know, 1060, 1066 and all that, as they say. Uh, don't the, know, the invasion, the invasion, you know, the invasion, 1066, you know. In 1798, do you mean? No, no. The invasion of England, you know, from France, 1066. Remember 1066? Oh, that's going back a long way, Joe. Do you mean back... Uh, yeah. That's a big question. Like, hmm... Yeah, well, I'm um, just saying, it's, it's, it's a famous date, you know, when the, the oh, Anglo-Saxons you know, were finally talking. subjugated. 1066. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, well, well, you didn't really learn, you, you didn't really take much notice, did you, of, of your history? No, lesson? I didn't. Because you would have learnt no. that. That was central to the British really? story. Yeah. Right. I wasn't really probably all that interested in history, maybe. Um, but we, I, don't, I don't think it really reflected on, you know, what a lot of, um, um, their um, backgrounds and so forth. No. Right. How far did you get in high school? Um, I actually failed Form 4 and I went back and did Form 4. Right. Or Year 10, passed that, and then I did Year and passed that and then left. You left at Year mm. 11. Why do you think you failed Form yeah. 4? Um, well, we started getting a little bit radical, Joe, because... Um, uh, the principal at the school, we used to go up, we had a field, like a huge field, and we used to go up with our girlfriends and boyfriends or whatever, yeah. and just sit up the field and chat and stuff like that, and they were actually spying on us. Right. And they brought us up in assembly, like he's quite a strict authority figure, yep. uh, the principal, and he said, right, the girls and boys that are going up the field can no longer sit together, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we made a joke about it. Okay, we'll draw an imaginary line. You know, girls over one side, boys over one. So actually, um, uh, we ended up finding an old car outside of the school, right? Um, in a vacant block, and we, we nicknamed the guy Smiley because he didn't care. I mean, he used to wander around the backyard, and we used to sort of spend a lot of time in this old car that yep. we had. Yep. And like all, you know, good. Little secret rendezvous that come to an end, and all herded up to the office, and a couple of students left, and um, we were sort of reprimanded and all that sort of rubbish. But, so I sort of, I don't know, Joe. I was really looking forward to leaving school. I really was. Um, 
I did. And I started off doing French, and there was a lot of right. class, a lot of students didn't like French. Right. Uh, so I, I did touch typing, I think, for four years, um, which was quite good. Um, I didn't mind art. Art was all right. Right. Um, I really liked English. Didn't like my English teacher. I oh. thought she was really. She was American. She was quite slovenly. Didn't really show much effort. So I really wanted to succeed uh, with English. That was sort of my goal, mm. I guess. Yeah. So um, what, does, what does a young man do in Colac when he leaves school yeah. in grade eleven? Um. Well, my first, my first job was. Um, uh, Open Brothers in Melbourne. So I went to Melbourne and lived. Right. I lived in Flemington Road. So um, you used, used your family connections in the uh, funeral industry? Yeah. Basically, yeah. Dad rang somebody up and said, look, this bug's at a loose end. You've got a job <laughs> for him. Is that what happened? Well, <laughs> I was actually questioning a bit, Joe, because um, when I say I didn't mind because it was good to get away from Colac and go to the city and do what young people do. It was... With the um, get away, I just enjoyed that independence. Right. Um, but I was learning to trim coffins. That was my job. Right. So I was working in the coffin room, and we had certain quotas of coffins. And like Tobin Brothers had, you know, they did like up ten funerals a day. So what they what they did in two weeks, we probably did in a year. Right. <laughs> you know, they obviously had a lot more employers. Uh, Employees, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, and been past Tobin's a few times, you know, on to more recently out to Tunnamanaway, more boy Hino commemoration. Yep, yep. And you can hardly see the car park there now. It's just sort of disappeared in this conglomerate of big buildings everywhere. Hmm. It's amazing, yeah. This is the one in Flemington Road, is it? Yeah, Joe, it's the corner of Flemington Road and Racecourse Road. Right, yeah. right. What was it like? Uh working there. What what year was this? Do you remember the year? Was it 70-what mm. or 80-what? Do you remember the year? But in 1980-something, uh, wouldn't it? Yeah, Joe, it was pretty close to... Um, might have been actually the later 70s, I think. Late um, 70s, right. was when ACDC was really... Yeah. Right. Not the later ACDC, the earlier ACDC. Right. So, I, was, I was living at Sunshine. I'd moved out of the flat and moved in with a mechanic. Right. From Tobin Brothers. used to do all the vehicles. Yeah. Moved in with him and lived at Sunshine, then moved from there to Ascot Vale with friends of mum and dad's. Chap, he was a wharfie, friend yeah. of dad's. Yeah. Um, and his wife, um, Nancy, she used to work at 4 and 20. And I stayed there for a while. And yeah, I didn't really like Melbourne, it's too fast. I used to like to look forward and get back to going out with my mates, yeah, just doing stuff that you do at that age. Yeah, so how long did you did you work for Tobin Brothers in Flemington? Tobin Brothers, that's um, uh, yeah, a good question. Probably around 12 months or 12 so. 12 months, yeah. And what did you do after yeah. that? Um, well, I kept working for Dad, but I um, got employment at um, Piketley's Bakery in Colac, which was just about two blocks away. Uh-huh. So I went and worked at Pick um, as a baker, and I used to cut the dough and throw it up into the hopper. Right. And then help out in the morning. Um, yeah, just getting all the loaves and packaging, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Watching a lot of 
bread that was thrown out, they used to actually uh, have people come around and take a lot of bread away that was no good, right. broken or... Yep. Yeah, it was quite a quite an interesting job. I worked these in a bakery that had a machine that was almost a replica to the one that I was using at Big Catalyst. It's, it's amazing. It's something else I'll never forget. I just couldn't believe it. Right. Mm, that so, was a bit... So how long how did you, how long did you last in Colac before you moved on again? Um, uh, well, my brother was hit by a car when he was seventeen mm-hmm. at mum and dad's house. So my dad had contacts um, in the funeral business, and uh, Greg went and worked over in Israel. He worked in a kibbutz in Israel, mm-hmm. and when he when he got back. Everything. Um, I thought, yeah, that sounds really idealistic, real ideal. Had just sort of a bit of a dream image of this place called Israel. So I did the same thing. I did a different. I went to London, travelled through Europe, um, went to Greece, um, went over to Crete with some German guys and. It was quite funny because in Athens it was very busy and we actually slept in a night and I didn't really feel that comfortable in Athens. I didn't know the history of Athens, so that didn't help. Um, but I met some Germans there and they were asking me if I wanted to go to Crete with them. And when I was with them, they couldn't understand what I was talking about. Right. Speak very fast, so... And we've got a lone language, you know, lingo. So got used to these German guys and travelled them over to Crete and we stayed on the beach and had a really great time. Really loved it in Crete. It was just beautiful and quiet. Well, you lived uh, on the beach? Yeah, yeah. How long did that last for? Oh, Joe, for me, it just over a week. I was getting bored. Right. Uh, basically, just, you know, drinking wine and eating and... Right. Not to really. Yeah. yeah. So I went over to Israel, caught a ferry. They come down to the ferry with me. Mm-hmm. Caught a ferry over to um, Israel, went to cross uh, roads, um, Israel, um, straight to the agency in Leonardo da Vinci Street. And I was stuck on a bus the next day to the kibbutz. So into the kibbutz the next day. So well, they were basically yeah. they were looking for labour at that stage, were they? Yeah, Joe. I, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of volunteers there. That was probably the most confronting bit. Like, sort of after unpacked and settled in a little bit, was actually going into this big mess hall and there's volunteers from all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jewish people were separate from us guys, right? Uh, Europeans and Australians. Uh, English, um, language. Yeah, just lots of different people up South African and worked in the kibbutz. Did bananas. Started on the back of a tractor, popping up banana trees in about 40 degree heat. Mm. And um, very hard work. Uh, yeah, worked there in kitchen and plastics factory. I was in a um, kibbutz called Ashdot Yaakov. 
And it was quite a funny joke because there was a, a left and a right wing towards And I thought, that was, I thought, how does that work? <laughs> but the only difference I can see is maybe we've got English music because they had English music there. Yeah. And you know, English bar and you could go and have a drink and listen to... They remember that Bob and, you know, all Rolling Stones, all Western music. So, yeah, there was that sort of little bit of a... That side to it. But that plenty of things to do if you wanted to, I guess. But mm. how long did you very last? Hard work. Yeah, how long did you last? I didn't. Look, I didn't actually stay there long, Joe. Actually, um, uh, I was doing okay, but I met a English guy who had been um, booted out of England. Basically, right. Uh, he had a heroin addiction, and the judge said to him that if he got into trouble again, he would go to jail. So. His doctor told him he needed to piss off out of England and mm-hmm. um, get away from those people. And I met him. He was 26 years old. I was Scottish. He's from, um, I think, Sheffield. Uh-huh. He had mirroring in his left ear and tattoos, and he was a little, you know, he was quite um, badly emaciated from his um, life. Mm-hmm. And we travelled together. Yeah, we travelled. We got out. We left the kibbutz. We met some South Africans by chance. It was quite ironic. We just sat down after work one night and there was some South African guys at the table and we got chatted. They told us about a mushab, which is uh, like a horticultural type um, setup. So people actually owned, like the kibbutz was more, more of a collective, farming collective. Right. For want of a better term, I don't know how you actually define a kibbutz, but mm. um, actually uh, Mushab was privately owned, so I worked for a South African family. Like We had, we lived in a house. It was our family. We got paid um, fairly good wages. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, yeah, we did flowers for the markets of Florence, Florence Markets, uh, Gypsophilia. Um, I worked for another family uh, cleaning tomatoes mm. in hot houses. Um, and, yeah, I met a few Scots. I uh, met an English Jewish guy mm. um, who lived in Tel Aviv, I think, and, or might have been Beersheba. Went back to his flat and realised how relatively poor everybody was. Mm-hmm. And how militarised everything was because everybody wore army uniforms, like wore army uniforms mm. on buses. Like you'd have to line up to get onto buses, and it was quite um, very regimented. Uh, and I think you might have mentioned that once in the letter, Joe. Very regimented. Mm. It's a good word to use. Uh, um, yeah, lots of guns. Like all the soldiers were armed. Is, is that when you began to realise a little bit of what was yeah, happening? Yeah, well, it was funny in the kibbutz, Jack, because the soldiers came up to us and were, like, outside having a drink, and he came up to us and said, uh, like, you're safe here. I remember him saying that, and I didn't know what he was talking about. Right. And I thought it was an odd question to say. Like, I was thinking, safe, safe, safe from what? But the only thing I sort of knew about, a little bit about, was the Jewish Holocaust. I didn't actually know about um, the Palestinian issue till later. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, that was quite quite strong. 
was a bit like Australia. It was hidden out of mind, out of sight. Yeah. And then I think it was in uh, Tel Aviv or somewhere. I was at a market and uh, and a boy threw a tomato at his and hit him on, on the side of the head. And the reaction from the soldier, like, really took after this boy. Like, he was going to really hurt that kid for doing that. And I sort of remember looking at the time thing, shit, like, and settle down, like, no big, no big drama. But, yeah, I just sort of struck me at the time that that was something that you wouldn't do, you know? Mm-hmm. So how long did you um, last in Israel? Well, I stayed in the um, Moshav for about five or six weeks, and um, we met some Swedish girls there, and they had worked in the south of Israel in a kitchen near Elat. Mm-hmm. Um, a tourist kitchen. Um, so we threw in our jobs and went down there. And hard to believe, but this beautiful, almost pristine um, uh, tourist kitchen mm-hmm. on the side of the water um, with scuba diving, um, even nude sunbathing, which was really strange. Oh. Didn't like that idea to start with, and then I thought, hmm, looks like nobody's really taking any notice of anybody's. But we lived in huts on the beach, basically, right. and worked in the kitchen. We actually got, we got paid in coloured rings, right. which is quite strange. Yeah, so anything we wanted to buy, we just used those rings. Right. And because in the kitchen, plenty of food, there was always a lot of wine yeah. and stuff, you yeah. know. So, so when did you and return back to Australia? Stayed in the kitchen for quite a while, yeah. worked there, um, and I went back to. I got really homesick after a while, yep. and Phil had really come good. Like I had a lot of trouble with Phil because he, obviously, with his addiction, yep. wasn't coping all that well. So I went back to Beersheba and, and got a flight back home, um, back to Australia, and then there was that culture shock of moving back to a small town. Right. So my girlfriend and I basically packed up and left for the country, moved out into the country. Right. Out to a place called Bronborg, mm-hmm. which is sort of south of Collar. Right. And lived out there. She worked in a plant nursery. There's another couple that lived in this farmhouse with us. And um, I worked on a sheep farm. I love working outdoors after that. I got a real... Like, I kept working for my dad, but I just had this bug about working outdoors. I, I carted hay, worked on... I worked at the campground abattoirs even for a little while. I didn't killing animals, but mm-hmm. I worked there. That was a bit of a bit of an eye-opener. Money was very good. So I worked there for a little while. Um, mm-hmm. I did potatoes, pulled potatoes and onions. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Right. Yeah, so... So, so when, did, a, when, did, when did your life change? There was a life-changing well, event. I remember you said to me once, Joe, that you know, after my accident that I could not have gone living the way that I was living because mm. I um, sort of worked in and for a long time, liked yep. to move around, yep. lived in caravans, flats. Yep. I did my nursing in Warrnambool, looked at months left, um, back to Colac. Um, yeah, just couldn't settle down. Basically, mm. 
um, I just life had changed. Yes. Like I wasn't. So what happened? What happened? Most people most people don't know you. They don't know what happened. What happened? Well, they don't, don't know. Most people, I think, they look at me and think I'm a respectable young man. Which no, no, but they don't, they don't know what actually happened to change the direction of um, life. Well, I got in a fair bit of trouble, Joe, mm-hmm. um, in different areas. Um, I played football for a long time, and I found that you know the football culture there's always a lot of drinking, mm-hmm. uh, chasing girls, going out fighting, all the things that sort of went in that area. Mm. I wanted to make a clean break of that. So, um, yeah, I met a girl that was sitting in the housing commission in Collar, mm. and we packed up and moved to Ocean Road, rented the house in Ocean Road. Right. That was like a life changer then. Mm-hmm. Started, worked for the Geelong Council, built a bicycle path around the Eastern Beach, mm-hmm. where you've had your interviews more recently. Yep, yep. Mm. Um and uh, then after that, um, I was in a caravan, moved back to Ocean Grove, worked in a plant nursery, um, travelled over to Indonesia, travelled up through Indonesia, and then not long after, um, had a motorbike accident. Mm. It was quite a serious motorbike accident because uh, it, it left you for permanent injuries. Is that correct? Yeah, Jack. Yeah, uh, 35 years. Yep. I've been using the chair and... Um, so what, you've been a paraplegic for 35 years now? Well, just terminology, Jay, that's right. Um, yeah, but you've been in a chair, and... you haven't been able to use your legs, basically. No, no. Right. I actually started off walking and when I went through the Austin um, Hospital in Melbourne, which is a spinal unit, mm. um, some of the... They said, if you get into any trouble when you leave, meaning... Uh, physical, mm. uh, get onto this bloke Toscano. So mm. when I got home, I was still walking. I still had full use of my right leg. Right. So my dog wasn't paraplegic. It was Brown's or Quartz syndrome. Right. The blood clot on the spinal cord. Mm. But because I had a broken leg and broken wrist and um, um, like a pressure, pressure area, that happened from the Geelong Hospital mm. during the nurse strike in '86. Mm. Um, they didn't want to operate. They used to have meetings every few days, and they couldn't make up their mind because mm. they had to do an operation to put a pin on a femur in my left leg. Mm-hmm. So um, I sort of worried about my independence. That's what really worried me. And, right. and I, the mental image of this obese person in a chair, the bottle of beer beside his chair. You know, I didn't really have an image of mm. myself being independent, but mm. it depressed me a little bit. Right. Once I found out I could be independent, I thought, okay, I'll fight my way out of this, and that's basically what happened. Right. So, so, mm. Mm. so when you know, you have been a great uh, supporter of uh, radical causes yep. and 3CR. When, when did, you, when did yep. you move into that direction? <laughs> well, Joe, that's a funny story. I still remember that because um, I used to go... Had a lot of trouble when I first was in a chair with spasm, urinary tract, and different things. And I used to stay in a place in um, Northcote. Mm. Um, it was a post-traumatic head injury hospital where you were able to put spinal injured people. Right. And it um, on the radio. I thought, geez, that sounds like that bloody Toscano bloke. You know, that sounds like that. <laughs> so. I remember I was doing some artwork outside one morning. I was doing some ceramic, and I was painting up 
this bloody piece of art. Right. And I said, oh, good morning, Dr. Toscano. And he said, oh, good morning, patient Michael. <laughs> and I thought, that was a bit of a strange thing to say. So we ended up talking and I said, I think I heard you on the radio. Was that you? And you said, yes. And then you asked me about anarchist literature, yeah. Emma Goldman and um, Peter Kropotkin. And I knew nothing about any of those people. Right. The only history I really knew about was probably a little bit you know, the Holocaust and... Um, and the hippie movement. Right. Like, I was really interested in the hippie movement because I figured that, you know, people were fighting for freedom in a different way. Yep, yep. And it fascinated me. But we didn't learn anything about that. I sort of, at high school, sort of covered that away from us growing right. up. So, so what have been what have been your major challenges uh, trying to live uh, independently in a mm. wheelchair over the last uh, thirty plus years? Um, major challenge. Uh, well, I guess um, growing up, I was uh, classified really as a binge drinker. Right. That was probably my biggest challenge because I was used to going out on the binge drinking thing. That was a normal thing to do, mm. even driving a motor car. Right. It took me a, a long time and a lot of trouble, as you know, um, before I actually got my head around going back to school and getting back into work. Um, I worked as a volunteer marine radio here for licensed 11 years right. um, and got back into writing. I've always been a poet, so I always had my scrapbook with my poetry, which what um, I, I know for you or Alan your um, wife um, introduced me to um, looking at my poetry and that was a big life changer for me, I think, having right. my work published. That would, that, have been, that would have been Alan, wouldn't have been me. I wouldn't have the uh, yes, artistic right, house. It would have been that's Alan right. to have done that, would have encouraged yeah. you in that direction. Yeah, yeah. I was absolutely, that's probably the biggest thing in my life because I don't think anyone was really interested in much poetry mm. growing up. wasn't really popular. So that was probably uh, something I really um, started to grow in different areas and reading anarchist literature, attending meetings, um, going to series was in my life because... Now tell us about going to series the first time you went. Well, that was interesting, Joe, because I used to listen to a, um, a show called the Curry Survival Program right. on 3CR and that, Gary Foley used to be the presenter on that program. And he basically said, you know, get along and um, get out and, you know, do a bit. And I went along to series to the environment and learned a little bit about permaculture because I was always interested in gardening. That had a lot of concrete in kayak because of his vehicles and business and so forth. And the only time I really had a plant chance to grow a garden or learn about gardening is when I went to my grandparents in Geelong. Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of ethnic people there that grew gardens but my grandfather was a really good gardener so I really um, wanted to grow a garden and I learned that at Ceres Permaculture when I first started to think about that sort of concept of permaculture. Mm. How how difficult is it uh, doing gardening and growing a garden from a wheelchair? Well Joe, um, when we went to Ceres, like we worked in a group too, that sort of collective thing was what I think sort of put my mindset, rather than trying to do things by myself all the time, 
like working for groups. So we were given a box of plants and were asked to just plant them in random places that we thought they might have been um, inducive to sunlight or things like that. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit of a challenge. And then learning about, um, yeah, different things at series, like they had an environment house, um, solar energy, um, plant nursery, uh, bicycle workshop, lots of different things that were really interesting and sort of were progressive. They weren't things that we were doing. Nobody else was doing it. Mm. So I thought, yep, I'm... I was sort of fortunate after my accident because my parents built this little house that I live in. So I was into cutting glass and doing lead writing and um, I got interested in permaculture and started putting things out, like putting down, um, getting rid of the lawn, just putting down sheets of paper, um, mulch, putting in plants, fruit trees and native plants. Mm-hmm. herbs um, thinking about chooks still thinking about chooks right and my mum just coughs in the background yes mum still thinking about chooks chooks still chooks <laughs> yeah I bought some eggs yesterday I think mm. Mm. yeah I, I know um, a market gardener and yeah I have a bit of a chat to him and yeah I think it wouldn't be a bad idea uh, so what yeah. what what um what are your interests today, apart mm, from thinking mate. about chooks? Well, Joe, it's, yeah, that's right. Um, I, when the COVID thing happened, uh, sort of prior to that, got interested in bees, so I worked with bees for quite a while. Um, I started, I had an oversupply of um, hand sanitizer. Right. And I rang up the company and they said, oh, look, if you've got an oversupply, but, or if you're not using it, just throw it out because it's medical waste, basically. Mm-hmm. So I thought, no, I'm not going to throw it out. So I've had this, like, 10-year backlog of all this hand sanitizer. <laughs> <laughs> you would have been the most popular person in Ocean <laughs> Grove. <laughs> when this, yeah, well, that's right, Joe. When this COVID thing happened, like, the bakery where I sometimes go and have you know, um, a pasty or something like that. I said, okay, well, do you want some hand sanitizer? So now we took some up yesterday every couple of weeks. I just drop a couple off there. Yeah. It feels like that's, that's a good thing to do. It is. It is. Yeah. Right. What's, up, what's life like in Ocean Grove these days? Because last time I visited you, it looked like a bit of a concrete jungle where you are. <laughs> Yeah, Joe, everyone's actually built up around me. Like, everyone's gone for the view. Like, I've still maintained my tree, tree landscape. Yeah. And, um, and it's created a uh, an area which is conducive to gardening, definitely. Right. Not conducive if you want to get a view of the sea, but that doesn't really worry me that much. No. Um, I'm more interested in, like, I've got a banjo, and um, I spoke to you earlier about this, is using that in a productive way. Um, I've been out of Melbourne recently and had the back seats taken out of it and been in contact with Ocean Grove to do some food distribution. Right. Um, which I volunteered for. Something a bit more, you know, keep myself 
a little bit more active, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and actually yeah. help people in your community because, look, things I've noticed yeah. about you that I've admired is your ability to look at new things and actually uh, look at them seriously and not just close your mind to new ideas and new things and uh, your capacity to help those around you. I mean... Uh, Thank you. Yeah. That's very nice for you to say that. I mean, I had a lot of support to do that. Like, I don't think I would have um, progressed if I hadn't have listening to people like yourself and my parents, um, you know, right. got back on my... And the people I work with, the carers, I've yep. got a lot of respect for them. Mm-hmm. I work with different cultures, um, which is a challenge, but I really like it because mm-hmm. everybody's their culture is different. So how much, how much caring do you receive a week? Um, I have about... 30 hours, Joe. Um, 30 hours caring, and that, that's courtesy yeah. of the Transport Accident Commission because you're in a road traffic accident. Yes, that's yeah. right, Joe, yeah. I think, I think what people um, need to understand is every time they see their um, their registration bill, you need to understand about 60 yeah. to 5% yes. actually goes to the Transport Accident Commission mm. to ensure that people who've had major yeah, issues yeah, yeah, um, are looked after, and obviously um, you know, you've, you've benefited mm. from that. Mm. That's right. That's, that's been... Important to know, like, you actually set me on the stage to, on the path to stand up for myself a bit more when it came to getting a new wheelchair. Like, I actually had a chair that, um, snapping the two braces at the front. Right. Just from hitting gutters and stuff, I suppose. Push chair. And, um, I couldn't seem to get anywhere. And I actually, um, occupied the TAC and it was able, after a, a long, a long effort, was able to get a new chair. Yeah. So I don't think... A bit I think of direct like, action. Yeah, a bit of direct action. Yeah, yeah, I think like the actual just ringing up people and all that sort of stuff doesn't work. You go in there and make an appointment, mm. see the person that, that represents you and um, be aware that you have got rights. Mm. They're enshrined in law as well. So you've got human rights and you've got like get in there, find out who your case manager is, say, look, I need this piece of equipment. Yeah. Look, in the last five or six minutes, I just want to ask yeah. you what role 3CR has played in your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I listen to 3CR regularly, as, you, as you're aware, um, long-time listener sponsor, gets out to a lot of people, doesn't have commercials, um, reflects the lives of people from all different backgrounds. Um, First Nations people, um, people who have come from other countries are, are settling here. Um, the broader community. And it's not out there to make it for corporations. It's out there for community. So therefore, it's the only radio station. So if you're not a listener sponsor to 3CR and get off your asses and do something because then you'll learn about things because the people on that program are in the same position as you. They might be an elderly person, they might be a person with disability, they might be um, a person who's struggling with um, you know, racial inequalities or something like that. There'll be a program there. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about it. It's very um, hands-on and... Um, 
Yeah, I've been a long-time supporter of 3Star Radio. Mm-hmm. What programs, um, forget about my programs, but what other programs <laughs> do, do you listen to on 3CR that you find uh, um, informative? Okay, Joe. Um, well, I listen to Robbie Thorpe. I listen to him for quite a while. Right. His program. I'm actually listening to his program at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I listen to Anarchist World this week. I used to listen to breakfast programs quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I... I if I've got the radio on, I'll listen to it all day. All day, right. It's background it's music, of, yeah. It doesn't really matter. It's, yeah. it's just nice to listen to that. If I listen to commercial radio, I find very disturbing. Mm. I think the culture of that's changing a lot. Yeah. Um, the hype. Yeah. yeah, you don't get the you get the reality, not the hype. So I like that part of it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Now that Learning you, about... Yep. Mm. Now that you're turning 60... Have you turned 60 yet, or are you past, about to? Yeah. No, past. Past. Yeah. What, what, what are your plans for the future, apart from uh, organising your funeral? <laughs> Although you're not very good at organising funerals, you tell me. So you better get somebody else to no. do it. Well, you're a step ahead of me there, Joe. You're pre-planned. Yeah. Um, uh, I want to work, like, in the voluntary field with um, food distribution. I've got the um, equipment to do that, and there are a lot of people who are homeless today or people that are losing their jobs as we speak um, and a very productive sort of um, area to work in. I don't know how long that'll last, but I hope we can make it sustainable because the collectives and that that I was involved in when I was younger and even more recently, food collectives closed down. Mm. So I want to make sure that if collectives are the things that evolve out of um, these issues that we're going through at the moment, um, whether they're fishing, even, that hmm. they stay cooperatives, that they don't become businesses and run, that they have volunteers working in there that actually care about other cultures, hmm. like the food cooperative in Geelong. Hmm. Um, I think important point, yeah. Uh, that's basically it, Joe. Really uh, keep myself as healthy as I can, mm-hmm. exercising, um, yeah, just enjoying life. Right. Yep. Being in a wheelchair for so long, what are the, the main yeah. main lessons yeah. you've learnt and what's the main lessons okay. we should learn as a, as a community when we are you know, approached okay, by Joe. somebody in your situation? I think most people sort of got a knee-jerk reaction when you're in a wheelchair, which is quite understandable. Like, oh, it's like almost, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, um, it's, it's really tasked the person. I think, like, that really helps if you ask the person, um, you know, if they need assistance or um, if you get to know that person, then you can ask the person about their disability. The other person might want to talk about it, they may not want to talk about it. Mm. But um, I think it's just learning about um, people in chairs and their, what their needs are. Um, and people in chairs do have a, um, a lot of different needs and they also have a lot of different requirements as far as education and access to medical equipment, lots and lots of different things that are productive to their life. Um, and we need to 
keep that momentum up. I think we've sort of slipped a little bit there. Right. We do have access to public transport now, which is only a fairly recent thing. Um, and um, and we can actually get out in the communities. We work. We don't need to be... We've moved away from, you know, the periods of when people were in shows. And That's right, yeah. To verandas, to uh, working in communities, to schools, to... Um, you know, surfing organisations. Uh, mm. Oh, it's just amazing what you can do. It really opens up so many avenues. Well, it does. I've got I've got a patient, a C two ventilator dependent quadriplegic, who's been surfing yep. down your end of the the world yep. uh, because of the assistance yep. of the uh, whole group of people. Yeah, you know, that's just an extraordinary experience for somebody. That's amazing, Joe. It is that's amazing. amazing. Yeah. So, like the transformation. Like yeah. I haven't. I didn't do that last year. Um, I was cancelled because of the COVID thing. But, um, mm. yeah, it really does make a big impact on the lives of people with disabilities, for sure. Mm. It makes people feel confident. It gives them a sense of well-being, part of the community. It encourages the health. The water helps them. Yeah, um, yeah I think that's great, um, being able to get out and do that. Well, that's the key to and get out. People in the community... I think younger people, especially Joe, they're very. I seem to be because they've seen people in chairs. They've probably been assisting their parents or their, you know, their siblings or so forth. Mm. A more understanding of what it is to have a disability, um, and people that work in the disability field. Fantastic, yeah. Mm. That's a lot of. Well, Michael, look, it's been a, a pleasure uh, chatting with you. I mean, uh, I, yeah. think, I think you've had an extraordinary life journey. As you said, you've uh, done many different jobs. You've had many different experiences. Uh, you found yourself yeah. in a situation which has been particularly difficult for the last 35 years, and you've been able to uh, overcome that, and uh, you're making a significant contribution to the community. And as a long-time yeah. supporter of Community Radio 3CR... We wish you all the best for the future now that you've turned 60 and hopefully, um, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to make a promise. If you turn 80, I'll interview you on Radical Australia again. How does that sound? Really? Yeah, hey. yeah. Yeah, but I'll be I'll be 90, so I won't be here. Who knows where I'll be? But <laughs> it's a promise. One of those promises we'll never keep. But, but Michael, thank you very much for being on Radical Australia. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All the best to your mum, Gwen, who inadvertently found herself in the program and your dog and everybody else. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.